Here's a coincidence for you. On June 27, 2018, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced he was retiring. Then, on June 29, just two days later, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency boss Scott Pruitt and Army Public Works boss Ricky James issued a so-called supplemental notice that mentioned Kennedy 64 times. One week after that, Pruitt was gone, replaced by coal lobbyist and climate science denier Andrew Wheeler. With all the comings and goings at the Trump White House, it's easy to overlook that little notice, which Pruitt and James squeaked out just before the summer holidays, a notice that aimed to torpedo one of Kennedy's seminal Supreme Court opinions, an opinion he wrote in 2006, and one that has since come to define the way we protect areas like this. Wetland ecosystems, swamps, bogs, and other soggy patches of land that mop up rainwater and runoff, store it, filter it, infuse it into aquifers, and release it slowly into rivers, streams, and lakes. Wetlands cover 274 million acres of the United States, and they ultimately provide more than half the country's drinking water, which is one reason the federal government protects them, or has, until now. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it. We own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how our destruction of wetlands degraded our rivers, lakes, and streams, how we came to realize that we were doing this, how we came to fix it, at least in the United States, and how the Trump administration is doing everything it can to sabotage protective mechanisms that have evolved over centuries. Today's show is a long time in coming, and I've had to break it into two installments. In this episode, installment one, we'll look at the history of our understanding and protection of wetlands up to the year 2000. In our next episode, we'll cover 2000 to the present. I started working on this one way back in early March after meeting this guy, 
My name is Dave Groves. I'm the Director of Business Development for the Earth Partners, uh, formerly at White House CEQ in the Obama administration. CEQ? Uh, yes, the Council on Environmental Quality. The Council on Environmental Quality was created by Congress in 1969 to make sure federal environmental and resource agencies, like the Environmental Protection Agency, are all on the same page. Now, I met Groves in Washington, D.C., at a meeting of the Ecological Restoration Business Association, or ERBA, E-R-B-A. This is an association of businesses that make their money restoring degraded forests, rivers, habitat, and, of course, wetlands across the United States. Ecological restoration is a $25 billion per year industry that employs over 220,000 people in the United States alone. It's bigger than logging, bigger than coal, and even bigger than iron and steel. But most Americans don't even know it exists, let alone why. Here's the reason. It exists because federal laws require real estate developers to fix what they break, so to speak. Under the Clean Water Act, for example, if you pollute or disrupt a river or any of the waters of the United States, you have to restore an area of equal or greater environmental value. That's an oversimplification. I'll flesh it out a bit later. But a fundamental question is, what are the protected waters of the United States? Until now, they've included wetlands and creeks that impact the quality of rivers, streams, and lakes. But the Trump administration wants to resurrect an obscure 2006 definition that was put forth by the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Justice Antonin Scalia said that the Clean Water Act jurisdiction was very limited to lakes, oceans, rivers, and streams. Scientists, policymakers, businesses, pretty much everyone ignored Scalia's definition, as we'll see today. Anthony Kennedy's opinion brought in this term of significant nexus. Mm-hmm. And the courts, the subsequent court decisions, followed Justice Kennedy's interpretation of the significant nexus, and that became more the law of the land, um, and Justice Scalia's opinion was more or less disregarded. Okay. And what exact, what, is, what does he mean by significant nexus? Well, that's, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a lawyer d- describing natural resources, so, <laughs> you know, who knows? I interpreted it the only way I thought it might make sense, and that is hydrologically. That's William Lewis, a professor of biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and my first guest today, making it clear that the significant nexus definition was based in science, while Scalia's definition, the one everyone ignored, was based on something Scalia found in his dictionary. This matters because we hear over and over again that the Trump administration would never dream of trying to repeal something as dear to us as the Clean Water Act because the public won't stand for it. But what if they just changed the definition of waters of the United States? It's sneaky, but that's what they're trying to do. My first guest is William Lewis, who you heard a few moments ago. He's a professor of biology at the University of Colorado Boulder and interim director of the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute. I've learned pretty much everything I know about wetlands from his 2001 book, Wetlands Explained, 
which I encourage you to pick up if today's show intrigues you. Skimming it again to prepare for this interview, I was reminded what a good read it is. He brings you into the science, the ecology, the politics, and the economics of wetlands, and he does so in a fun way. If you decide to pick up a copy through Amazon.com, can I encourage you to access Amazon through my own website, bionic-planet.com? If you do that, I'll get a few pennies too. And if you really like what you hear, you can support me by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. Dr. Lewis, it's great having you here. I'm a, a big fan of your book, and I really like the way you open with this history of our understanding of wetlands and the way you show how protection evolved along with that understanding. You start out in 1850 with the, the Swampland Act, which encouraged farmers to drain wetlands at first and grow crops on them. But then by the 1970s, we've got the Clean Water Act, which protects wetlands and encourages us to expand them and restore them. Can you talk a little bit about how this perception began to change? The first significant change was the awareness of duck hunters. They uh, noticed that even despite the control of the federal government over harvesting of ducks, that the numbers of ducks were declining drastically, you know, even within the lifetime of an individual hunter. And they uh, guessed, based on their knowledge of the landscape where the ducks were coming from, that the habitat of ducks was being destroyed to such an extent that it was reflected in what they were seeing on the flyways. This led to the Duck Stamp Act, which required all hunters of migratory waterfowl to buy a duck stamp and for the money from that to go toward conservation of waterfowl habitat. And that basically is one basis for the part of the Clean Water Act that protects wetlands and organisms and life forms that live in wetlands. And also the Endangered Species Act, for example, which came to be into being near the same time. We could argue that Ducks Unlimited was the first real effective conservation exactly. group. I think you had something about how the invention of the double-barrel shotgun led to a surge in duck hunting, which led to a surge in, in, in awareness of of the impact yes. of <laughs> I just right. found that really fascinating. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by the way isolated events or events that seem isolated are bound together. And waterways are like that too. A swamp or bog, for example, which today we're calling wetlands, might filter sediments out of muddy water that gushes down from the hills or rolls off of farms. Then it might feed that water into rivers and streams that people drink from. Wetlands, it turns out, are a critical but often invisible part of a country's water system. If you drain or fill a swamp, you could have unintended consequences far downstream, and regulation hinges on whether you do or don't. You describe the movement of water through soils underground. It's invisible to the eye, but it's moving through this land, and when you disrupt that, it, it speeds the flow of water. It's almost like the whole landscape could be looked at as an invisible river in some places. In some places, but in other places not. You could have a place where the water that falls on a watershed, let's say a farm, is in equilibrium with a local aquifer. There's, there's stored water down below. 
and the water feeds into that aquifer and other processes take it out, but the exchange with a nearby river might be very low. So that then you're getting into a marginal case. For example, the Corps of Engineers doesn't try to regulate farm ponds or uh, tiny headwaters and so on. You might be wondering how the Army Corps of Engineers popped up in a piece about environmental regulation. After all, most Americans know the Army Corps as the agency that builds massive dams and dikes. But it's also responsible for implementing a critical part of the Clean Water Act, which came into force in the early 1970s, but began taking shape as far back as World War II, when wartime industrialization decimated the country's rivers and streams. In 1948, Congress passed something called the Water Pollution Control Act, which encouraged but didn't require individual states to clean up their waters. Unfortunately, rivers and streams have a tendency to disrespect state lines, and upstream states had a tendency to dump stuff into waters that went downstream to people far, far away. Water quality continued to degrade, and by the 1960s, people were sick of it. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio is so loaded with the waste products of petroleum distillation that it is actually in danger of catching fire. In 1969, Ohio's Cuyahoga River literally erupted into flames. Randy Newman wrote a song about it, about the unnaturalness of it all. But I learned something while putting together this episode that knocked my socks off. When that river caught fire in 1969, it wasn't the first time. It was at least the 13th time, and it became the last time. It wasn't, in other words, a new low, a symbol of our modern decadence, but a final straw, a catalyst for a new beginning. Americans were sick of their rivers catching on fire, and Congress was listening. Politicians approached it like adults, as Lewis makes clear in his book, where we see lawmakers grappling with the challenge of regulating something that not only flows from U.S. state to U.S. state, but from physical state to physical state, from ice to liquid to vapor, and it moves on the ground, under the ground, and through the air. In those debates, when Senator Ed Muskie of Maine said that water, quote, moves in hydrologic cycles, there was no James Inhofe-type character popping up with a snowball or water bottle to prove it isn't so. By 1972, Congress had completely rewritten the Water Pollution Control Act and replaced it with the Clean Water Act, which President Nixon promptly vetoed. That's right, he initially vetoed it, but Congress overrode the veto and he eventually signed it. Here's where it gets interesting and relevant to today. The law took its authority from the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which I found really confusing, even after reading Lewis's book. So I did some digging and found an article called From the Fields of Runnymede to the Waters of the United States, a historical review of the Clean Water Act and the term navigable waters. I'll post a link to that in today's show notes, and it's also embedded in a five-part series on Ecosystem Marketplace that I wrote, tracing the history of the Clean Water Act. From the very start of the United States, water was the circulatory system of commerce, and all commerce depended on clean 
regular flows of water for transportation, for drinking, for watering crops, and eventually even for turning the turbines of industry. As our understanding of water systems sharpened and evolved, so did the way we regulate them. And the article documents 250 years of evolution as we first added man-made canals to the water system and then came to understand the way water moves through nature. In the early days, regulators talked about navigable waters of the United States, which gradually split into several terms, navigable waters, waters of the United States, and tributary of any navigable water. By 1972, lawmakers were using terms like navigable waters and waters of the United States interchangeably, and they were careful not to define them. They intentionally left that vague. And here's how we know this. In the House of Representatives, when a committee approves a bill, it also has to write up a report explaining its reasoning. In this case, we're talking about the Public Works Committee. And their report on the Clean Water Bill said, and I quote, One term the committee was reluctant to define was the term navigable waters. The reluctance was based on the fear that any interpretation would be read narrowly. However, this is not the committee's intent. The committee fully intends that the term navigable waters be given the broadest possible constitutional interpretation. In other words, the committee recognized that the term navigable waters, as used within U.S. laws, had come to mean more than just waters you can float a boat on, and had come to mean waters of the United States, or waters impacting the quality of water flowing across boundaries. And lawmakers wanted experts in the agencies to create their own definition. Now, agencies don't just pull these definitions out of thin air. Definitions and rules cannot be arbitrarily or capriciously created. They're created under something called the Administrative Procedures Act, which requires scientific review, public comment periods, and cost-benefit analyses. By 1998, the waters of the United States officially included, quote, all waters which are subject to the ebb and flow of the tide, all interstate waters, including interstate wetlands, all other waters, such as intrastate lakes, rivers, streams, including intermittent streams, mudflats, sandflats, wetlands, sloughs, prairie potholes, wet meadows, playa lakes, or natural ponds. It goes on and on. And if you want to read the whole thing, visit the show notes for episode 32 at bionic-planet.com, where you'll find links to the source material. The 72 Act focused on what they called navigable waters, and that was then later expanded to be the waters of the right. U.S. And and the, this whole concept of what is and is not a navigable water really evolved. Right. And can you talk about how, how that evolution took place? Yes. The uh, idea of a navigable water originally, of course, came from the use of large rivers and lakes to support commercial traffic and to be a commercial asset or a government asset. And from in that sense, the word navigable is very easily interpreted. But it was in those debates that uh, Senator Muskie was, uh, where he was a prominent contributor, and he said the water moves in cycles, that Congress implicitly ex accepted the argument that big waters come from smaller waters. 
And you can't protect uh, certain characteristics of the big waters unless you also protect the tributary waters. And that that view, though, wasn't spelled out very explicitly in the legislation. However, uh, the courts interpreted it as being implicit in the in the legislation. And then, of course, we've gone back and forth on uh, that issue ever since. You'll learn more about that back and forth in the rest of today's show. But the back part is something I get. You don't always see wetlands with your eyes. And we Americans pride ourselves on being a practical folk. In the West, it's particularly annoying to people sometimes because there's so little uh, water to be used. And another set of regulations on the existing water just seemed overbearing at at the time. And uh, people were ridiculing the decision to extend the federal control up into the drainage. Uh, There was a saying in the West that navigable water was any water that would float a matchstick. And I think that encapsulates the problem. But if you think about it, the way it was being discussed in Congress of the water cycle, which includes the runoff that makes the big rivers and then evaporation, discharge the ocean, so on, as all part of the same big scheme, that was the correct way to look at it, of course. Of course, but not for everyone. We'll be looping back to this over and over, but I wanted to introduce another concept that we'll be dealing with today. And that's the one that drives the $25 billion restoration economy that I mentioned earlier. It's the concept of no net loss. Basically, with the Clean Water Act, Congress tried to strike a balance between economy and ecology. They realized that cities would expand and contract, and there might be a time when it's in most people's interest to let a city build a road through a wetland or let a developer dredge a stream for a new housing project and they created provisions for doing that. In such circumstances, if a project gets approved by a local authority, it still has to ask the Army Corps of Engineers for permission to impact the waters of the United States. And the Army Corps of Engineers will only grant that if the developer can show first that it's avoiding as much damage as possible, and second, that it's making up for damages by restoring more wetland or stream than it's messing up. In the early days, cities and companies would try to fix the damage themselves, but that proved expensive and unreliable. Pretty soon, business-savvy environmentalists started getting into the picture. They looked for degraded streams and wetlands near expanding areas, and they'd go in and restore the degraded areas, generating environmental credits in the process. Over the decades, as rules and regulations evolved, these so-called mitigation banks emerged as the most economically efficient and environmentally reliable way to make up for damages. But it all still relied on what did and didn't constitute the waters of the United States and what did and what didn't constitute a wetland. Scientists had lots of detailed criteria for evaluating the impact that a wetland had on downstream waters, but how could this be converted into a simple regulatory guideline? The Corps of Engineers did a very good job of dealing with this, and it's dealt with in my book, by defining a wetland hydrologically. A wetland is defined by three things, water or hydrology, soil, and organisms, mostly trees, vegetation. And the hydrology part, is very clearly spelled out. These are lands that have water closer than 12 inches to the surface for a duration of more than two weeks at a time during the growing season in most years. 
And you can make a little list of those. And the, if you had a hydrologic record, you can make a certain identification of a certain areas of wetland or not. But getting a hydrologic record is easier said than done. You need to come back year after year and take measurements. So they found proxies. This was a functional definition that had a scientific base that can be understood and can be applied. But you usually don't have a hydrologic record. So you use indicators that don't involve hydrology, which means you use hydric soils, which give you evidence of a repeated saturation. Or use vegetation, particularly long-life vegetation like trees or long-life shrubs. There are lists, national lists of these things, and you identify the vegetation as either belonging to a wetland or not belonging to a wetland. It's all been worked out in great detail. But what if someone wants to disguise a wetland by, say, chopping away the telltale plants? That's actually a thing. People do it. The frustrating thing has always been people who own land that actually uh, is a valid wetland that is from which the vegetation has been removed. So you can't see the vegetation that would be in a wetland. Now, if you try to deal with it, of course, you notice that it's waterlogged to an extent that it won't grow uh, crops that are not tolerant of water in the soil because in, in the growing season, if the water is closer to the surface than 12 uh, inches uh, for two weeks or more, it will kill the, the most uh, species of plants that are of agricultural use. That's one reason why they chose that definition. You can actually define it through agricultural use. So farmers don't generally dredge wetlands anymore because the soil just isn't productive. But what about someone who wants to build, say, a shopping center or condominiums? The the landowner who's not farming might be frustrated by saying, well, this is a piece of land where I want to develop and... Uh, I've been here five years. I haven't seen any waters on the sur- any water on the surface. It's all been uh, prepared for development. It's been mowed and all that. And you're telling me I can't use part of it. They probably don't want to know uh, why it is we do that. That led to a lot of friction between the Army Corps and landowners, as well as a lot of court cases. In 2001, a group of cities from my neck of the woods, Chicago, sued the Army Corps when it tried to regulate old quarries that had been filled in with water. The Supreme Court in that case ruled that those isolated pits were not part of the waters of the United States because they didn't share a significant nexus with rivers, streams, etc. Then came two real estate developers from Michigan, John Rapanos of Midland, Michigan, and June and Keith Carabell of Chesterfield. Their cases were fuzzier, and they also got all the way to the Supreme Court in 2006. They were disputing what was and was not a wetland. They were saying that this is not a wetland. Look, I'm standing on it. It's not wet. And then it went to court and all this kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah, it was It was sort of um, what might be considered an isolated wetland or a wetland that was quite far geographically from a navigable water. This is Dave Groves again, the former Obama staffer. And so then he challenged the Army Corps of Engineers saying that that was not jurisdictional under the Clean Water Act. And the Army Corps obviously said that it was, and so they went to court. This Rapanos case is pretty well known in environmental circles, and the common narrative is that the Rapanoses were just a friendly, middle-class couple digging around in their backyard, and that the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers overreached. 
Some environmentalists will tell you this because it's what we've heard over and over again. And because, well, regulators do occasionally overreach. I mean, it happens. That's why we have the courts. We've all had run-ins with overzealous bureaucrats, so it's not completely preposterous to believe the narrative that Rapanos was an innocent guy caught in a regulatory quagmire. I believed it, too. But then I started digging around for this episode, and I read the court documents, which are available online, and I listened to the audio of the Supreme Court proceedings, some of which I'll play for you in a moment, and I found that this narrative is simply wrong. Here are the facts. In 1998, John Rapanos optioned 175 acres of land to a developer who wanted to build a shopping mall. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources told Rapanos that part of his property seemed to be in a wetland system and that his activities could impact surrounding properties and rivers. They explained to him that he'd need permission from the Army Corps of Engineers or a legally recognized local authority to develop those parts of his land, but Rapanos ignored them. He went ahead and spent $300,000 clearing the land anyway. He did hire a wetlands consultant, a hydrologist named Glenn Goff, to survey the area. And Goff found that around 50 of Rapanos's acres were clearly wetlands. And he testified in court that Rapanos vowed to, quote, destroy all those expletive-deleted wetlands. An inspector from the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, a guy named Charles Dodgers, went out to the property and documented what he called systematic wetlands destruction. The state issued several cease and desist orders, which Rapanos ignored. Only then did the state call in the federal EPA, which issued its own cease and desist order in 1991. Rather than comply with the law, Rapanos started clearing and filling two other wetlands that clearly drained into rivers and streams. He spent $158,000 destroying 17 acres of 64 acres of wetland on one 275-acre property, and he spent $463,000 to destroy 15 of 49 acres of wetland on a 200-acre site. No one disputes any of this, not even Rapanos himself or his lawyers. It's all documented, as is the fact that Rapanos was charged, tried, and convicted of violating the Clean Water Act a criminal offense, not just some minor paperwork infraction, but a clear criminal act motivated by greed and a complete disregard for the impact on his neighbors as well as on rivers, streams, and habitat. The simple fact is that Rapanos spent almost a million dollars destroying wetlands without even trying to follow the procedures for getting permitted, and his case got picked up pro bono by the Pacific Legal Foundation. So, what is the Pacific Legal Foundation? It's an operation created by Richard Mellon Scaife and funded in part by the Koch brothers. And if you've read Dark Money or Democracy in Chains, you know who those guys are. If you haven't read them, I can recommend them both. And if you want the audiobook, you can get it for free and help me at the same time by ordering through audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. If you do that, you get a free one-month membership to Audible, and then you pay after that if you want to keep it going, and I get a few pennies too. The site again is audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. Getting back to the Pacific Legal Foundation, they described Rapanos as, quote, a 70-year-old Michigan grandfather 
who for nearly two decades has fought overzealous government prosecutors seeking prison time and more than $10 million in fees and fines because he failed to get a federal permit before moving soil on his own property. That's accurate as far as it goes, but the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals mentioned some other things about this 70-year-old grandfather, and these are facts, not opinions, regarding Rapanos's behavior after Dr. Goff delivered his hydrologic survey, which included both a report and a map. Here it goes. Mr. Rapanos ordered Dr. Goff to destroy both the report and map, as well as all references to Mr. Rapanos in Dr. Goff's files, the judgment says. However, Dr. Goff was unwilling to do so. Mr. Rapanos stated that he would, quote, destroy Dr. Goff if he did not comply, claiming that he would do away with the report and bulldoze the site himself, regardless of Dr. Goff's findings. This is what got Rapanos into trouble, not an overzealous bureaucrat or an overzealous federal bureaucracy, and the Rapanos case goes to the heart of the unending debate over where individual rights end and the common good begins. Legendary Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is reported to have said that, quote, the right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins. And while it's not clear he actually said it, the sentiment is hard to argue with. Keep that in mind as we shift to the U.S. Supreme Court now for the remaining 15 minutes or so of today's show. As I mentioned, Rapanos kept losing in lower courts for obvious reasons, but he had deep-pocketed backers who were willing to use Rapanos to set a precedent that would stifle environmental regulations. So his case eventually got lumped in with a suit filed by another Michigan development group headed by June and Keith Carabell. And both cases went all the way to the Supreme Court, which is where we're going now. As we get into this, Try to remember the history of wetlands regulation that we covered in our discussion with Dr. Lewis, how the laws and regulations expanded as our scientific understanding improved. The first voice you'll hear is Reed Hopper. He's the Pacific Legal Foundation lawyer, talking about why he thinks the Army Corps is trying to protect too many waterways. They claim 404A jurisdiction over the entire tributary system, from the smallest trickle to the largest watershed, sweeping in, sweeping in remote, non-navigable wetlands 20 miles from a traditional navigable water. This limitless claim of jurisdiction shifts the federal-state balance and raises significant constitutional questions. We believe this boundless interpretation is inconsistent with this Court's reading of the Act in Solid Waste Agency. The Solid Waste Agency he's referring to is the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County, or SWANC, for the initials S-W-A-N-C-C. SWANC versus Army Corps is the 2001 case that I mentioned earlier, when the Supreme Court ruled that the Army Corps should not regulate isolated pits and abandoned quarries because they don't share a significant nexus with navigable waters. After Hopper finishes his opening statement, the late Justice Antonin Scalia speaks. Now, Scalia, as many of you probably know, was unabashedly opposed to environmental regulations that impacted property rights. And he seems to move Hopper's argument further along, as they both seem horrified by the idea of the Army Corps protecting so much water, or as they would phrase it, impacting so much 
private property. It goes somewhat beyond the smallest trickle, doesn't it? Doesn't it also include ditches that currently don't have any trickle if they obtain a trickle during the rainstorm? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, they actually uh, argue that it, it makes no difference whether they're what, what the substantiality is or the directness of the connection is. Um, it's irrelevant to the jurisdictional determination. And as I said, they, they, the uh, agencies assert jurisdiction over even the entire watershed. For example, the Mississippi watershed, uh, the largest in the nation, covers one million square acre, uh, one million square miles. Um, and reaches from the Rockies to the Appalachians and uh, drains 41 percent of the 48 uh, lower states. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg then asks the critical question. If Hopper says the current regulations go too far, she asks... Where would you put the line? I'd put the line where uh, Congress put the line, uh, Your Honor. Uh, Congress declared uh, in 404A... Uh, that uh, it would prohibit the discharge of, of fill and dredge material uh, into the navigable waters. So uh, the, the, these agencies can permit or prohibit any discharge, uh, no matter where it occurs, so long as it reaches a navigable water. He flounders around a bit before Samuel Alito comes in. But they're doing it for a functional reason. The functional reason is that if you put the poison in the adjacent wetland, it's going to get into the navigable water. Exactly the same argument can be made as you go further and further up the tributaries. And it seems to me that once you concede, as I think you have to, uh, that there can be a regulation that goes beyond literally navigable water at the point at which the, uh, the pollutant is added, then you have to follow the same logic right up through the watershed to, to, to any point at which a pollutant, once added, will eventually get into the navigable water. The reason that logic does not apply, Your Honor, is because the regulation of, uh, of, of tributaries raises significant constitutional questions that are not implicated by the regulation of a wetland. Then, then you have to accept the fact that, that, that Congress cannot effectively regulate the navigable, the, the condition of the navigable water itself. Because if all the, the, the let's, let's assume there's a class of, of, uh, of, of, of evil polluters out there who just want to wreck the, the navigable waters of the United States, all they have to do is get far enough upstream and they can dump anything they want to, it will eventually get into the navigable water and Congress can't do anything about it, on your theory. That's incorrect, Your Honor. We acknowledge that under the, the Act, the government can regulate any discharge that actually reaches the navigable water. So you're, you're, you're going to you, — you then want to draw a distinction between the dredge and fill addition and, let's say, a, a — conventional synthetic poison? No, either, in either case, um, if, if, the, if the discharge of dredged material actually enters into a navigable water, regardless of where it's discharged, it would be covered. Same for I mean, on, a conventional on, in, every, in every case, then, I mean, Congress would have to analyze, I'm sorry, an, uh, a scientist would have to analyze the molecules and, and, and trace them up, and so long as they could uh, could trace it to a specific discharge they could get at it, but otherwise they couldn't? I mean, that, you know, you know what I'm getting at. That obviously would, would totally thwart the regulation. I don't, I don't believe it would, Your Honor. The, uh, the, 
Certainly Congress did not think so. In uh, section could, Couldn't you simply assume that anything that is discharged into a tributary ultimately goes where the tributary goes? That's Antonin Scalia again. And at this point, even he seems to be finding Hopper's argument kind of weak. Wouldn't it be enough to prove the discharge? Well, it certainly wasn't true in this case, uh, Your Honor. The, so you, you don't think it would be enough for the, uh, uh, for the government to prove the discharge into a tributary in order to prove that the act has been violated? No, Your Honor, I do not. You really think it has to trace the molecules? Absolutely. That's, that, that's what the terms of the act require. How do you, do, how do you define a tributary? That new voice, the question you just heard, is Chief Justice John Roberts. Well, we're suggesting that, that, that this Court need not define tributary because under the Act, all tributaries are excluded. Hopper's absolutist arguments seem to be getting little traction and even encountering skepticism with Scalia. But then a different lawyer, Timothy Skopker, comes in to argue on behalf of the Carabells, whose case is a little bit different. Unlike Rapanos, the Carabells actually followed the law. They applied for a permit, and they even amended their application to try and earn approval. But they were still denied. Stupka argues that the Carabell's property is not part of the navigable waters of the United States because a man-made berm separates the area they want to develop from the drainage ditch that feeds into the rivers. Justice John Paul Stevens, however, points out that the act of turning the spongy, absorbent wetland into a tar and concrete commercial development could change the whole scenario. It's a bit like the debate over Schrodinger's cat for you physics buffs out there, or Catch-22. But isn't it sort of foolish to say that we're concerned about pollution, uh, but only if you you catch it in advance? That doesn't make sense. Because if the problem would arise when you did what you're seeking a permit to do, why shouldn't you be denied the permit? The application for the permit does not automatically equate to a request to discharge. The fill of a wetland does not automatically discharge into the ditch. No, but my hypothesis is that we know it would happen, or they they would find it would happen after the project is completed. And it seems to me that that that's what you should focus on rather than what's, you know, rather than what happens before. A few minutes later, after some back and forth, Souter reiterates Stevens's question. If it will result in discharge after the project, is it a water of the United States now? Under the Court's definition in Swank and Riverside, the answer, again, is no. Then, then Congress has passed a statute that says we'll lock the barn after the horse is stolen. I mean, that, maybe that's what it did, but that that's, would be a very odd thing for it to do, wouldn't it? It did not do so, Your Honor, because specifically under Section 1251B, it reserved to the states the primary responsibility of regulating pollution within its waters. The primary responsibility. So, in other words, it's a state issue until the berm is broken, at which point it becomes a federal issue. But here's the thing. More than half of U.S. states have laws prohibiting their regulators from imposing protection that's greater than federal protections. And with the Carabells, local authorities had denied the permit, but a local judge ordered it issued before the feds got involved, arguing that breaking the berm would impact the waters of the United States. Justice Scalia then summarizes the finding thus. The only reason it's water of the United States is that there are some puddles on this land, right? And if there were no puddles, it, it wouldn't be a water of the United States. It would just be land of the United States. 
That's correct, because there's some puddles on the land. U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement then makes the government's case. The Corps' regulations, which for 30 years have ignored the premise, the, the, the presence of a berm, are rational because in the vast, vast majority of cases, that berm is not going to prevent a uh, hydrological connection, so to speak. And so a test that focuses first and foremost on physical proximity is a very rational jurisdictional test. Reiterating again that what they're really trying to determine here is who has jurisdiction and how to come up with a rule that answers the question in the future. They go around and around over what constitutes a significant nexus and what constitutes an insignificant nexus. And then Chief Justice Roberts says to Clement, You would say a wetland with a hydrological connection to a tributary of navigable waters through one drop a year is a significant nexus to the waters of the United States? The way I would resolve that is I would resolve it with reference to footnote 9 in this Court's opinion in Riverside Bayview. And I would say, all right, one drop, fair enough. It's in the juris- regulatory jurisdiction because it's adjacent, and that's what the Corps looks to, and I think that's a rational judgment. But if there's one drop, grant the permit. Grant the permit. Again, federally protected doesn't mean all activities are prohibited. It just means some activities need to be permitted. They then spend some more time talking about berms. Really worth listening to, in my opinion. But for our purposes, it uh, just serves again to remind us how complicated this is. Finally, Clement closes by reminding us why the federal protection was created in the first place. The last point I would make is that there are going to be real-world consequences to contracting the jurisdiction of the Corps and the EPA to pre-1972 or really pre-1899 levels, especially for the downstream states. I think it's a bit much to ask a legislator in Wisconsin or in Minnesota to stop local development in order to protect the water quality and flood control propensities of the Mississippi River in Mississippi. That's why it was manifest in 1972 that there was a need for a federal solution to this problem. That federal solution includes as two of its most important components, first, getting at water pollution at its source, at the point source, and secondly, covering the tributary system without which the navigable waters will continue to be polluted. In the end, four of the justices sided with the EPA and Army Corps, but five voted to send the cases back down to the lower court, albeit with new and contradictory guidance. Rapanos ended up paying a $1 million fine to the Environmental Protection Agency, But the question of what were and were not waters of the United States went unanswered because no majority of justices got behind any of the opinions. The two opinions supporting the decision to send the cases back to lower courts are considered the plurality and concurrence opinions, while the opinions supporting the EPA and Army Corps are the dissenting opinions. For his plurality opinion. Antonin Scalia ridiculed the way the definition of the word navigable expanded over the years, and he compared the Army Corps to an enlightened despot while lamenting the high cost of permitting, which, by the way, Justice John Paul Stevens pointed out later, amounts to, quote, only a small fraction of 1% of the $760 billion spent each year on private and public construction and development activity. Scalia then abruptly shifted from science, precedent, and cost to grammar, pulling out that the term in question wasn't water of the United States, but instead the waters of the United States. The Act authorizes jurisdiction only over the waters of the United States. 
used in the plural and with the definite article, this term refers only, in, in the words of, of the dictionary definition, to water, quote, as found in streams and bodies forming geographical features such as oceans, rivers, and lakes, close quote. A country's waters do not include dry channels, desert washes, or storm gutters. They include streams, rivers, lakes, oceans, in short, relatively permanent, continuously standing or flowing bodies of water. In his concurrent opinion, Anthony Kennedy reiterated the earlier standards of waters needing to have a significant nexus to lakes, rivers, etc., and underlined the need for science-based guidance on what that means. The statute here is difficult. It uses the term navigable waters, but by that term it means something other than waters that can be navigated by boat. And the separate opinions today confront this difficulty in various ways. In my view, the correct approach has already been stated by the Court's opinion in our most recent case on the topic, the Swank case, to which Justice Scalia has just referred. There, the Court said the regulation uh, uh, can be sustained if there is a significant nexus with the waters that are navigable in the usual sense. In his written opinion, Kennedy wrote at length about the role that wetlands play in filtering water and regulating floods, and he pointed out that Scalia's requirement of permanence or semi-permanence, quote, makes little practical sense in a statute concerned with downstream water quality. Then he offered concrete examples to bolster his case, and he even said that Scalia had cherry-picked his dictionary definition by ignoring a definition in the same edition that said waters may mean flood or inundation. But while Scalia's opinion was too narrow, he said, Stevens's dissent was too broad. Now, Stevens, by the way, he also wrote the landmark 1984 opinion on how agencies like the Army Corps or EPA should implement statutes that they're charged with administering. And in his opinion in this case, he fact-checks Scalia on hydrology, criticizes him for focusing on regulatory costs while ignoring the costs of degradation, and fleshes out both the Rapanos and Carabel cases in detail. But with all these conflicting opinions, the big problem is that the trusty old definition was gone. So more and more routine permitting processes ended up in courts. But the courts almost always used Justice Kennedy's significant nexus test. And a few said you can use either Kennedy's test or Scalia's. But none, not a one, used Scalia's definition on its own. It was, everyone agreed, a mess. There was a lot of calls from all sides, the NGO community, the regulated community, the regulators themselves, for an attempt to create more certainty and predictability. So the Obama administration moved forward with creating a new clean water rule, also referred to as WOTUS, oftentimes because what they were doing fundamentally was redefining waters of the United States, the WOTUS rule. And it was issued in 2015, so it's now referred to as the 2015 Clean Water Rule. In 2011, after three years of constant complaints from environmentalists and industrialists alike, the Obama administration asked the EPA and Army Corps to begin the process of creating a science-based rule for determining what are and are not the waters of the United States. The agencies began first by asking hydrologists and wetland scientists from across the United States to gather all of the known science and the interconnectedness of American waterways into a massive scientific compendium. That came out in 2013, and when the agencies developed the first draft of the Clean Water Rule, which they published in 2014, 
They opened up 200 days of public comment that drew over one million responses that were incorporated into the final rule, which was released in 2015. It described six different categories of waterway that were, quote, jurisdictional by rule, and two that needed case-by-case evaluation. Within hours of the new rules posting on the Federal Register, 13 states filed suit to prevent it being rolled out across the West, arguing essentially that the rule overstepped the agency's authorities and that the bright light boundaries were arbitrary and capricious. A federal judge in North Dakota saw enough merit in the argument to issue a preliminary injunction against a rule in those states effective August 27th, the day before the rule was scheduled to take effect. That prompted other suits, leading to a nationwide stay on October 2015. The Obama administration was digging in to defend and possibly amend the rule when this happened. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. After becoming president, one of Donald Trump's first acts was to issue an executive order instructing the Environmental Protection Agency to scrap the new clean water rule and, quote, consider interpreting the term navigable waters in a manner consistent with the opinion of Justice Antonin Scalia in Rapanos versus United States. If implemented, that interpretation will leave 80 percent of protected waters outside federal jurisdiction. In part two, we'll take a deeper dive into the creation of the new rule. Then we'll explore the Trump administration's three-pronged attempt to undermine the rule and the Clean Water Act. That piece may be a few weeks or even a month in coming, depending on my workload, and I may have to roll out some simpler episodes in the interim. But keep checking your feed to see how this plays out. At the same time, if you want to hear more and better episodes of Bionic Planet, consider becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com, where you can support me for as little as $1 per month. I'm heading up to Wisconsin for a few weeks of camping and hope to be rolling out more episodes, as I said, in late August, early September, depending on my regular work schedule. Until then, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Come on, come on.